Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And Joe, the calendar, it is flipping to May. Uh, I, I don't know if we really feel like it's May, if we feel like it's still March, time, what is time these days, but uh, it does keep marching, and we have made it to May. Yeah, Selection Monday is just a few weeks away, which sounds really <laughs> haunting when I say it like that. I, I, I heard someone say something the other day that, that seems right, which is, you know, I think we all remember how long March felt, which is funny because we really got like a third of March out of the way without incident, you know, in, at least in terms of this, this new normal we have going on now. But March dragged on for so long, and now I feel like April went by, went by fairly quickly, and I, I um, saw somebody say that the, the days feel like weeks and the weeks feel like days. And like, strangely, I think that's about right, where some of the individual days can, can kind of drag, especially when you've been taken. I, I find that to actually be the case a little bit more on the weekends, where we're used to filling our weekends, you and I specifically, with going to games, covering games. And even for, for folks who don't do this professionally, they're used to filling their weekends in a lot of cases with sports content, whether this time of year that's NBA, NHL playoffs, baseball, what have you, and that, that's been taken away. It kind of throws that into disarray. So some of the individual days can feel kind of lengthy, but the weeks have been going by fairly quickly, at least, at least in my estimation. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, although at the same time, I, I have no idea because again, what is time? But if you are looking to fill your abundant time with uh, some of that sports content that we're missing out on. Joe and I uh, are the place place to go here on the Baseball America College podcast because today we are continuing our series of rewatching, uh, or I guess in a lot of cases watching classic college games uh, that that we can uh, find over on, on YouTube, and then we uh, we come back here and we break them down with uh, with a guest who who is a part of that game. And so today. We are talking about the 2011 College World Series matchup uh, between Virginia and South Carolina. It is the game that sent South Carolina to the finals for the second consecutive year. And we will be joined by former Gamecocks ace Michael Roth. He started this game for South Carolina, did not finish it because uh, it went pretty deep into extra innings. Uh, But he... uh, he pulled in a, a great start, and the game was an excellent game between the, these two programs. The second time they met in Omaha, it was uh, it was an interesting one to look back on. Uh, obviously, knowing what we know about the South Carolina dynasty at the, at the start of this decade, uh, and just kind of interesting to look back on. It's the first year that they're in TD Ameritrade Park. Uh, you have a returning national defending national champion in in this case and um, you know a lot of premium talent on the field so that's uh that's what we have on tap for you today uh joe it's uh it was an interesting look back i i thought to to this one i thought so too i mean i've been touting it the last couple of podcast episodes as, as like a nice snapshot in time of of what college baseball was like at the time. And actually it was even more so than I thought. I kind of thought it's going to be nice to see the South Carolina team again, like quite literally smack in the middle of what turned out to be a 22 game postseason winning streak, which is just absurd to say out loud. And it was that, that was nice. It was kind of nice to, to spend some time with that team again. It was also kind of nice to see 
um, that Virginia program, which had been building, 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 really kind of cooking at that point and, and was on the way to winning a national title a few years later. But there were other things around that. And, and you know, like you mentioned, first year of TD Ameritrade, that was kind of fun to see and realize that was the first year. And I can even sense maybe this is, I don't, maybe I'm wrong about this, but, but I also sense because it was first year of TD Ameritrade, you saw some things in the game presentation that you don't, I don't recall hearing much. And like they were doing like, um, you know, like charge chants, that kind of stuff over the, the sound system. And I don't really recall them doing that kind of thing at TD Ameritrade now. Maybe they do, but I don't recall that. And so I, I wonder if they were just trying to kind of play with the format a little bit more than they had uh, in previous years at, at Rosenblatt. Um, again, I could be wrong about that, but it's just something that, that drew my attention because I was trying to think about this being the first year of TD Ameritrade. It was also the first year of the BB Corps bats. And uh, boy, am I glad that, you know, we've kind of got the equipment right in college baseball because one thing I, I do remember about this period of time is I just remember thinking that, you know, walks are essentially inexcusable in college baseball during this era because the only way people were putting up runs in bunches was if you threw the ball around or if you walked people. Pitchers could just really without fear throw the ball over the plate, especially in TD Ameritrade, because you just – you weren't likely to get burned. Occasionally you would, but not very likely. And you can see it in, in – games in this era that outfielders are playing at essentially medium depth because they were they really the the strategy was take away any cheap singles and on the on the the lack of a risk that you're going to get burned for an extra base hit and most of the time that paid off so so anyway I say all that to say it was even a I think even a, a better snapshot of a moment in time in college baseball history than I even realized going into it yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting look back um, into into the the vault. I, it, it's not as far back as we went a week ago when we went all the way back to '92 to see Pepperdine, uh, but it is it is a different era of college baseball all the same. And so that's that's part of what makes this so interesting is that it feels like it was a really long time ago. If you're you know just looking over the course of time uh, or over the course of the, the, the changes in the game in the last decade, but it was, you know, less than a decade ago, actually. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, Michael Roth is one of the more interesting characters in the game in the last decade. One of the constants throughout the South Carolina run. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a part of all three of these College World Series teams. And, you know, just we put him on the cover of uh, the, the college preview issue one year. He had a big league, like he reached the big leagues. He was never like a premium prospect and, uh, but he was just this great college player. And so it's interesting to, you know, go back and and take this trip with him down memory lane and to see how he viewed the game then and and, and how he reflects on it now. So I, I, I thought all of that was, uh, was pretty great. Spoiler alert. We already did the interview. Um, so with that, I guess let's get, to Michael Roth, the South Carolina ace, and uh, let, let's go back to uh, a day in June in Omaha in, in 2011. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are excited to welcome in former South Carolina ace and big leaguer Michael Roth, star of those great Gamecocks teams. Uh, Michael, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing well, hanging out at the house right now. Um, you know, just amid this uh, virus mess that we're all dealing with here. Absolutely, it is. Uh, it is quite the mess. But uh, we wanted to to take a trip down memory lane to 2011, and of course, that's um, an exciting year in South Carolina baseball history. And uh, you know, in the midst of, of this dynasty at, at the start of the last decade, and um, you know, when when we to to set the scene here, the the game that we're talking about is the second time you guys had played Virginia in the College World Series. Um, you guys had had so much success to this point over the last couple of years. Even what did it feel like in terms of just the postseason, the confidence you guys were playing with? It, it must have felt like you guys were unbeatable at times. Yeah, certainly. I mean, in 2011, um, obviously most of the team had been, had been to the college world series before, you know, in the, in the previous year. And, uh, we were kind of the underdogs, um, or at least we played that card and obviously went on to win. And then in 2011, we just had such a strong, you know, we had the majority of the guys back and had just such a strong group of guys that were just mentally tough. And, not that we were, I don't want to say, you know, arrogant, but we were just very confident that we, you know, had every ability to walk into a game and, and go ahead and win it, no matter who we were playing. And, you know, Virginia had some um, some really good arms and some really good teams. And, you know, we – up until that point, we're just kind of on a roll and ha had faced a lot of good teams. You know, we look at when, what we did to get there in 2011 was we had to go through a, a solid UConn team um, and then made it, to the, made it to the World Series and beat Florida or wait, that was, I think that was um, 2000. Yeah, we had to beat, you know, we beat Florida on the opening game and then here we are facing uh, Virginia. You mentioned the, the lead up to getting to that World Series. You took on UConn, and that was a really good UConn team that included George Springer and Nick Ahmed. They ended up with four big leaguers on that team, and it strikes me that's a team that if they'd have faced just about anybody but maybe you guys, that team ends up in Omaha. What do you remember about competing against that group in that Super Regional? Um, you know, honestly, I don't really remember much. Uh, it's probably terrible to say, but I. Um, what I do remember was I remember that they came, you know, that they were highly touted and I think they were playing at Clemson. And so they were in Clemson's regional. And so at some, at one point, you know, we thought we were going to have to have a, um, uh, a super regional showdown against our rivals. And I believe UConn went in there and beat, beat Clemson um, in the final game or beat two and one, two in a row and then came to play us. Um, and I just remember, you know, I knew they were a solid team. Obviously, if you make it to the Super Regionals, you're a great team. In 2010, we, we played um, the Coastal, and that was probably one of the best teams we played in 2010, and even including the College World Series. And, you know, we were able to advance against them. But when I, I just do remember that they had a lot of great, great guys. I always forget about Ahmed, but, you know, I knew about Barnes and, and Springer, obviously, who was – was probably one of their their standout players that that year. 
So you get back to Omaha and just what is the difference in being in Omaha, you know, having been there before and, and going in as, as the champs, how, how different was the feeling among the team? You talked about how there are a lot of guys back. A lot of guys had experienced that. What, what was your guys's experience having been there and done that before? Well, you know, in 2011, it was a new experience in the sense that you're playing at a different stadium. Um, it was new for really everyone that was there. You know, the stadium was was brand new. Things around the stadium were completely different. So not only the players were adjusting to new experiences, but also the fans. And, you know, Rosenblatt was around – around the stadium Roosevelt was like a like just a massive party they'd have the beer garden and you could just walk around and it was an awesome atmosphere and in 2011 you know everybody was still trying to figure out what it what the area was like and it still wasn't some of the development around TD Ameritrade wasn't finished um, but for us as far as playing in games you know we had played in we had played in big games we had played in big games in 2010 and we had played in big games in 2011 and so we were just very, I guess I would just say that mentally strong and that was driven, the mental strength that was driven into us, um, you know, prepared us for going into a new environment, although, you know, maybe not new in just the level and intensity of games. And, um, but, but we also knew that we, while we had all this experience, we also on paper weren't the best team. And it was always, you know, we were going against a Florida team who had tons of guys that had been drafted. Um, or we were going against a guy like uh, Danny Holton, who I think struck out eight out of the first nine guys when he faced us, you know, guys on paper that almost on, you know, if back then, if you looked at it on paper, we were always probably the lesser team. And, so I think some of that attitude with just our, our confidence in ourselves helped us be, you know, be a great team and, and put together some wins. Let's uh, move into the, this actual game here. So in the, in the second inning is you hit a little bit of a jam. They get a lead off walk and then a single go, puts guys on first and third and you're able to get out of it with the help of a, of a double play. How much of a, a boost was that for you to kind of keep things from snowballing early on against a Virginia team that was really, really good, as you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you know, the big thing for being a left-handed pitcher and a guy like myself where I just got a lot of ground balls um, was I always knew I was a pitch away. If if I had a man on first and one out, I was always a pitch away from getting out of the inning. And uh, that's kind of how I always viewed it in my in my entire baseball career was that, you know, as long as I could get a ground ball, I, I'm – you know, normally had guys up the middle or around me that, that could field it enough to bail me out. And um, that's what I feel like you have to do as a pitcher. You know, if you limit the, you limit the self-inflicted damage of like walks and, and hitting people and you just let your guys play behind you, um, a lot of times you can let hitters get themselves out. This game obviously is happening in late June. You've thrown a lot of innings by now. Uh, this will ultimately be the, I think, the 14th time you went at least seven innings in a game. How are you feeling physically while this is going on, and, and how did you stay sharp, you know, throughout this this long extended season? Yeah, that was, you know, something about about being a starter just clicked with me. Um, I just really enjoyed the ability to kind of 
put the team on your back and, and get into those later innings. Um, I always viewed it as my game. And, you know, that meant my game to win and my game to lose. Um, and so, you know, going into going into the season, whether it was, you know, even when I was a reliever, going into the season as a junior or senior, or even when I was a sophomore in 2010, I was going in and preparing to throw as much as I could. And I was, you know, I've never been a huge fan of pitch counts, especially as you get older into, um, and let, let me clarify, when I say older, I mean like you've, you know, reached puberty and everything. Um, and I mean, pitch counts as in not going above like something crazy, uh, like 150 or something. But, you know, I, I felt like in a lot of my innings there throughout the whole year in 2011, um, there's a difference between like high pressure situations where you're pitching with men on base or and you're cruising and there's some games where you know I may have thrown 90 pitches and you know 60 of those 90 pitches were you know with men on base and in high pressure situations where it's taking a lot more out of your body and your arm and and just your mentality and then there's other games where you know I could have thrown 105 pitches and I was just cruising and so there wasn't a whole lot of it wasn't a whole lot of taxing on my, you know, on my body uh, and mentally as well. And so I just, I always put a lot of work in prior and college baseball is a little bit different where you get, to, you get to throw once a week. So there's a lot of time in between there. And that's, I spent a lot of time in the training room with Brainerd Cooper and spent a lot of time in the weight room with Billy, just always trying to push myself to one recover quicker. So that way, you know, I knew when we would go into the playoffs, I would pitch on three and four days rest. And I think that's what helped me do what I was able to do in 2010, 11 and 12. You mentioned earlier that this was the first year of TD Ameritrade Park in Omaha. It was also the first year of the BB Corbat change before they had changed the ball. As, as a result, offense was, just down across college baseball in general. And I'm wondering if you can give us a sense from having competed in that environment. I mean, how much more uh, precious did it make runs feel in general or, or, you know, even just string trying to string hits together, you know, as you uh, went through this postseason, I imagine it was a situation where one or two runs could ultimately feel like 10 runs, just given that you knew you weren't likely to be able to put up these big five, six, seven run innings just in a moment's notice. Yeah, it it was a big difference, you know, with the BB core bats and and obviously I was still hitting here and there at that point and you know, I remember what it was like hitting with those those uh trampoline like bats uh, my freshman year in 2009 and 10 versus the BB core bats and and it was a big difference. Um I think it was also just a big psychological difference. Um for pitchers and hitters and for pitchers in the sense that you're able to, you may have a little more faith and a little more. Um, and so you're willing to throw that, that fastball over the plate and just be more in, you know, just be more intent on, on throwing a strike. And I would say probably the biggest difference was just, you knew that if it was over the plate and they hit it, they really had to get a hold of it in order to get it out of TD Ameritrade. I mean, it rose in black one with the old bats it flew out of that park but 
TD Ameritrade, it was a much bigger park. The wind wasn't built up on a hill like Rosenblatt. And so there, and there wasn't a whole lot of wind in the area. And so the ball, I mean, I can just remember some balls that were absolutely smashed that didn't go anywhere. And I think in 2011, we only hit one home run and it was by Peter Mooney, our shortstop at the, I think the very last game. And so for me as a pitcher, I just views, viewed it as, you know, use it to my, my advantage, be aggressive other pl- over the plate. And, you know, in knowing that if I didn't make a great those guys were going to have to really get a hold of it to get one out of the park. And if it wasn't out of the park, then, you know, my guys had a chance to go run it down or I had a chance to get out of the inning by, you know, trying to make some better pitches. So you exit the game and eventually Matt Price comes in and he doesn't leave the game for a long time. Uh, He threw, I think it was 90 plus pitches in relief uh, what, what's that like watching him come on and, and do his thing and, and just how much confidence did everyone have when he took the mound? Well, the role of a closer in college, at least when I was playing is not like the role of a closer in, uh, in professional baseball. And that's what made Matt so good was, you know, he, one, he pitched like a closer with all the, the emotion and, um, all the energy that he brought, that's, that's what he fed on was just that intensity. Um, and especially in this game, you know, in the Virginia game, it felt like at times he would almost put people on base. So that way he could get fired up <laughs> to get guys out. Um, but, you know, we knew Matt was just so good. And we, you know, we could tell, and I think you can tell in this game when there's times when, you know, when he wasn't able to feed off that energy. Um, but we just knew that if it was in Matt's hands, we had the ability to win the game. Um, you never want your closer to go that long, obviously. Uh, and for Matt, I'm sure it felt like he was he was a starter, you know. And, and at some point, I think it almost was like I didn't even pitch because that game went so long. Uh, but we just had a ton of faith in Matt and, and his ability because he was so good at the end of games and so good when the pressure was on. One moment when we certainly did see the emotion from Matt Price is in the, in the 13th when, when Virginia has a couple guys on and Scott Wingo starts a line drive double play on a ball headed up the middle. He snags it, tosses it, uh, and gets the double play at second base. How much of an emotional lift did that provide? Sometimes in these, these games that kind of go on forever, you, you hit little natural lulls and energy and, and sharpness. And I'm curious if that kind of helped you guys, you know, I don't want to say wake up, but kind of, uh, you know, gave you guys the momentum you needed to go in the bottom half of the inning and then win it. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, you go into a game like that and you get put in a situation and that, and whenever you get put in a situation like that, where there's men on base and there's ability for them to to scratch a run, you start to question, man, are we going to be able to pull this off? Are we going to be able to get out of this? How are we going to, how are we going to do this? Um, And for Matt to get that double play um, one, you know, you just always see, Scott and Peter, those guys in the middle, they just always made great plays. Um, but two, in a moment like that where it keeps the game in line for us to, to be able to go and win it, um, I mean, it gives you a ton of momentum. And there's, there's a lot of momentum in baseball. You try not to, you try not to ride those emotional uh, waves, uh, but it definitely happens in, in the game. And if, you know, and if you're a closer like Matt, 
you, you're definitely going to feel that. And, and all the other guys that are on the bench feel that too and, and get the, try to get the guys going to, to score some as you come in, come in there. So you guys will score in, in that 13th inning, and it happened partially because of some miscues uh, from Virginia. But how much is that just you guys putting pressure on them and, and the way that you guys wanted to attack teams that, uh, to, to force some of those mental lapses? Or, or is it maybe just some experience that you guys had uh, with an older experience group in, in, with the Omaha uh, you know, experience from last year? Yeah, I'd say Virginia was such a good team. And, um, you know, whenever you're playing extra innings, each inning that you go deeper into that, it, it just – the pressure ramps up a little bit more. The emotion starts riding a little bit more. And, and so it keeps, it keeps going up a notch. And every little thing um, becomes a big thing. And we had been in that situation a number of times. And I think the team at that point that makes the least mistakes is, is who's going to win the game. And fortunately for us, we had been there and we just didn't make that many mistakes as we got into late, later parts of the game throughout 2011 um, and specifically in this game. Um, and we put some pressure on them in that inning. I think there was like a stolen base and then an overthrow. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we were just able to, uh, you know, we were just fortunate enough not to not to make any mistakes where Virginia did, and, and that's where we were able to scratch a run across. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but the path you guys had in Omaha was, was not easy after A&M, which was a good team in its own right that year. I mean, you have Virginia twice, the number one team in the country, and then to finish it off, you have to go through Florida a couple times, and that was a stacked, a stacked team as well. What does it say about that group? Uh, that you were able to take down those types of teams in four consecutive games against Virginia and Florida to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you get to Omaha, you're playing the the best teams in in baseball, and that Texas and Texas A&M game was a wild start to the uh, to the year, you know, to to Omaha because. You know, we gave up four in the first, and then we answered it, and then it was basically a zero-zero ball game until the bottom of the ninth. Um, and so you're playing, you're playing those those tight games throughout, and you just, you know, for us, we hadn't played, we hadn't played those guys yet, so we don't know much about them. We're relying on scouting reports, um, but you know, when we go into the finals and we're playing Florida, we'd obviously seen those guys a bunch. Um, you know, I think in 2011, they had actually dogpiled on our field um, to win the SEC title. And so there was a little bit – or maybe that was 10. I'm, I'm mixing – maybe mixing the years up. But, you know, we had known those Florida guys a good bit. And so going into the finals, it, you know, we knew those guys. Whereas going in playing Virginia and Texas A&M, you know, we hadn't faced those guys before. But you obviously know that if you get to Omaha, you're a great team and a great program. So this obviously goes into, you know, the lore of, of your career and, and, and the South Carolina run in Omaha there. When you look back at that, is it possible for you to, like, create even a, a favorite moments list? Or, or are there just too many 
memories from from that time for you to even like accurately try and start lining things up in, in terms of what you uh, remember the most fondly? There's a ton of memories, um, you know, on the field and off the field. And probably the biggest one just for me personally, um, which really just put me in a position to further my career, you know, individually. Uh, but also that just helped us, you know, advance in Colorado series was my, when they uh, gave me the opportunity to start against Clemson in 2010. Um, that, you know, that decision right there and um, the way that I was able to go out there and perform that game changed really the course of my career. Um, you know, cause up until that point I hadn't really started many, hadn't really started many games. I'd started two games of four and I'd really only thrown a couple innings in each one. So um, that opportunity just changed the course of my career. But I mean, that Clemson game, you know, winning, winning the first world series in 2010, um, just all the trips, all the, all the big games that we were able to play, all the battles, you know, when we, you know, we're playing against like Sonny Gray and, um, you know, the guys that are at Florida and, um, there's just a number of teams that we played that were just so good. And you look back on some of the guys that we even had on our own team, like what Witt's doing in, in professional baseball right now. And same with um, Christian Walker uh, and Jackie Bradley, you see what these guys are doing and it's just, um, it's a lot of fun. And it's, it's really cool that we had such a good run. I wanted to ask you about something a little bit different and that's your involvement with uh, Great Britain on the international stage. You, you pitch for them number of different international competitions and I'm curious what that experience has been like for you it's a little bit different than pitching in the SEC or pitching in Omaha so I'm curious if you could take us through your involvement there and and, and what you make of, of Great Britain kind of trying to evolve a little bit as a baseball country yeah no doubt um so I my mom was born in Kettering um in the UK and so that gives me uh British citizenship so and I didn't really know that until 2012 um and part of that um, Great Britain reached out to me, um, people with the British Baseball Federation reached out to me, kind of letting me know that I could play for them in 2012. And there was a qualifier coming up that year. So I'd, I was playing professionally. Um, I'd been drafted with the Angels. And so I was in, I was in Orm, Utah for short season. Um, and there was a qualifier coming up in Germany. Uh, and so I got approval from the Angels to go play. And so that was my first time I was able to go play for Great Britain. And we went, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I had no clue. I knew, you know, I knew that I was not necessarily in the best of shape because I'd thrown like 140 innings in college when I was in pro ball. They were only let me throw two innings, you know, every five days, which that's when I really hated professional baseball because I couldn't pitch. But, um, and so we got there and we were in, in um, Regensburg, Germany, and it was, a, it was a ton of fun. You know, one of the first things we did was we got all the guys together and just went through and, you know, tried to understand, hey, where's your, you know, why are you here? What's, what's your connection to Great Britain? You know, because some of them were, were guys like me, plastic Brits, who, you know, were parents were – you know, born there and we don't, we've never lived there. Um, you know, or mostly we would probably consider ourselves American, but our, our heritage is, is in Great Britain. So um, connecting with just a, a bunch of different guys, um, that was a ton of fun. 
we didn't do very well. Uh, but then we made it to, uh, we got, you know, we had the qualifier in 2016 and, um, you know, we had a really good run. We just lost to team Israel and, and they were, you know, they did a good job in 2017, uh, where they went, um, they went and played pretty well. So losing to them, I think Marquis threw against us twice. Um, and, you know, you got a guy who's got a, a ton of big league experience versus us who, you know, we had some guys on the field that weren't even, you know, I think the guy that we started in that game, um, in the final game was a, uh, you know, a PE teacher. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the difference in, in just some of the lineups, uh, you know, obviously just a drastic difference. One guy's a professional baseball player. The other guy's is doing it for fun. And but it's just a great group of guys. You know, I was fortunate enough to, to play with them actually last year in 2019 at the European championship. And that was, that was part of the path to try to qualify for the Olympics. Um, and again, you know, just, we, I think we played we played some really good teams like Team Germany with uh, Donald Lutz on it. Um, we lost one nothing to them. I think I threw eight innings that game, and then we had you know the European tournaments are a lot different because you're you know there's really no pitch counts um, when you're playing in the WBC qualifiers. There's all pitch counts, and, and MLB mandates these rules. Whereas in the European tournament, I think I threw. I threw eight and like four and then five. So I threw a bunch of innings in like six days. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. You're playing one, you know, a lot of times is in a different country. Again, this, this one this past year was in Germany um, in the 2016, 2012 qualifier was in Germany. 2016 was in, in Brooklyn. So you get to play in some really cool places. You get to play with some guys that you wouldn't normally play with. And um, playing for, you know, a flag is a lot different than playing for, you know, a team, a, just a team that p pays you. Um, so it's just, it's really cool. You're, you're, you're coming together and you're trying to come together for a brief amount of time. You know, tournament baseball is drastically different than professional in college where you've got time to, to nurture a team and a culture. Whereas in tournament baseball, you're just coming together and try to try to come together for a week and see how good you can play. But it's, it's been a ton of fun. Um, I got to give a, a huge shout out to Liam Carroll for, you know, really pushing the envelope for Graper in baseball. I mean, he does so much work um, to really further the cause for the national teams. He, you know, so much of what he does, he does not get paid for. Um, and baseball and, and, Great Britain's not, you know, not the number one thing by any means. Uh, soccer obviously dominates over there. And um, it'll be, it will be a hard fight for baseball to, you know, to keep pushing. But there's, there's some really good players um, that, I, that I got to play with last year that are in college. Um, Richard Brereton would be one who's at Emory. I mean, and he's, you know, a, a 20, I think he was 20 years old. And has a ton of ability. He was just coming off a great season at the Cape and he's a guy that was playing for, you know, playing for Great Britain and hopefully he's got several years ahead of him. And, and, you know, I think I would be surprised if he doesn't have a, a professional career in there as well. So the, the British team, I guess, is the only baseball you really did last year. Um, you, uh, don't want to say retired because you haven't really retired, but you've been out of pro ball since the end of, of 18. 
what uh what kind of more occupies your your day to day in, in these times uh, after the the pro career has has come to a close? Yeah. Um. So my last my last you know bit of professional baseball really was um, down in the Dominican. I went down and played in the fall of 2018. You know, in 2018 I was with the Cubs, got traded to the Rangers, and I was dealing with like a knee issue. Um, at the end and um, went down to the Dominican and that was just you know every time I had been down to the Dominican I you know I fell in love with baseball again and when I went down in fall of 2018 I was just so tired um, I think and and I just was kind of tired of baseball and ready to be back home with my wife and my dog um, and so that's what I'm doing now you know just uh, I'm living in Greenville now um, Greenville South Carolina I I started getting into commercial real estate invest investing in brokerage um, in in the off season uh, back in 2016. So that's that's what occupies you know most of my most of my days. Um, just looking for opportunities and just helping businessmen, you know, business leaders um, and entrepreneurs, and and invest in commercial real estate. And that's that's kind of my my gig now. I, I, I was actually supposed to play for Great Britain, had a qualifier coming up in March that um, was canceled about four days before all the flights were heading out there and um, heading out to Phoenix uh, for this, uh, but this, for this virus hit. So not sure, you know, obviously MLB is trying to figure out what they're going to do with the season uh, before they can even figure out what they're going to do with the, the world baseball classic coming up next year. Um, so that impacts the qualifiers, but not sure when I'll, you know, um, if I'll be able to play in the next one or the next qualifier, but we'll, we'll see. Um, but you know, I, not that I'm trying to stay in shape to make a comeback by any means. I just, it, it's always fun to go play for great Britain and, um, you know, it would be fun to, to go out there and play again. Well, hopefully we're able to get a return to that soon enough and we can get a WBC or get another round of Olympic qualifying or, or whatever it is. Um, hopefully the, the baseball comes back soon enough. But Michael, we really appreciate you taking the time here to join us on the Baseball America College podcast and, uh, you know, take a trip down memory lane to this 2011 College World Series. Yes, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again to former Gamecocks ace Michael Roth for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Joe, that game, um, you know, we talked about it being a, a fun look into, into the vault, into what college baseball was a decade ago. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me just was how much talent was on the field. Um, you know, we think about the Virginia teams, I think a little more that actually won the national title or played for the national title in those back-to-back -back seasons. But this Virginia team was loaded. That South Carolina team uh, is full of stars in its own right. Obviously you have Jackie Bradley Jr. Um, you know, you have college stars like Michael Roth. There's just a ton of talent on the field. And it, this game really kind of lived up to that kind of billing. Yeah, no doubt. And what, what's funny about these South Carolina teams to me, and this is a me, like I'm fully admitting this is a me thing, but I actually don't associate Jackie Bradley Jr. as strongly with these teams as I do Michael Roth and Matt Price. And some of that is because I'm coming at it from the standpoint of being a college baseball guy. 
And so that's, that's why that is. I'm not suggesting that that should be the case, but you would think that he would have an outsized level of importance on this team. And he was a big part of it. But I think that also speaks to how much of a, as much as it sounds like a cliche, how much of a true team this was. And it's amazing to me also the level to which, I mean, look, anytime you get to three straight national championship series and you win two of them, those teams are going to have cult heroes emerge, but there's just a really large group of cult heroes that came from these teams, Roth and Matt Price and Scott Wingo, certainly even Mooney to a certain degree. There are a lot of guys that kind of became heroes as part of these South Carolina teams that went on this incredible run. And, and I don't know without doing a thorough accounting of it, I don't really know that there's any other program that had a, that will a having a run like this is just so difficult to do, but of those that have, I just, I don't know that there's been a group that's had as many, you know, cult heroes broadly defined as the type of player who excels more in college than in a professional career and kind of has this lore around them. South Carolina certainly has a lot, none greater than Michael Roth. That's kind of one of my, uh, one of my big takeaways from it. The other thing that I, you know, had, by looking at this box score, I, I didn't remember this actually from when I'd seen this game almost 10 years ago, but, you know, Danny Holtzen starts it. And when I looked at the box score, and you and I had this conversation leading up to us podcasting about it, like, why does Danny Holtzen come out early? And I thought maybe he, maybe he is on short rest or something. Maybe he has some sort of injury and it wasn't really any of that. He was ill. And so I think what's interesting too, is like just kind of the, what if like, because you know, he leaves the game after three and South Carolina immediately puts two runs on the board. And that really ends up being largely the difference for much of that game. And you just wonder now, Danny Holson was not going to throw a 25 strikeout shutout, but he was really dealing on a day when his body was betraying him. And it does just kind of lead to a natural what if in an era when offense was at a premium, like Virginia scored an early run, would that run have held up? You know, I don't know. And we'll never know. And they still would have had to win one more game against South Carolina the next day to get to the finals. But it is like an interesting little what if situation in, in recent college baseball history, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy when you, you're you looking at this and you see the shots of Halton in the dugout and they are legion. They, uh, they were all about showing Danny Halton in the dugout that day. And he looks bad like he is clearly suffering and it's Omaha in June and I didn't catch a game time temp but I'm sure it was quite hot and but it's way more than that and he he's just out there on the mound though and he looks excellent he looks so sharp he starts the game with six straight six straight strikeouts it's uh they weren't even fouling balls off he's just literally unhittable and that's everything that Danny Halton can be on the mound. Um, you know, that after the game, you know, Brian O'Connor gets on the podium and says, you know, that's why the Mariners picked him second overall. And yeah, I mean, he looked, he looked the part very much that day. It, it's just very unfortunate that um, it wasn't, it wasn't his day overall and you know it sounds like going into the game they knew that he wasn't going to go much more than he went uh they were maybe hoping to squeeze another inning out of him uh according to what what um you know they're saying on the broadcast but 
at no time did they think he was even going to go six or seven that they, they understood he was going out there and he was going to give them all the, all that he had, but that they were going to need guys behind him. And they have guys, you know, yeah, they score on Kyle Crockett, but Kyle Crockett is a really good pitcher in his own right at this time. He's just a freshman, but he'll go on to be a great closer for Virginia. And um, Obviously they, they have plenty of arms in that pen. It just, you kind of hurt for Halts and, and seeing what he's capable of and, and the, the fact that he is not capable of of matching innings the, the way that he would want to. And then, of course, the, the second half of this game really becomes a bullpen game. I mean, by obviously just by virtue of Holtzen not lasting that long and by virtue of the fact that it goes 13. And, I mean, first of all, I guess kudos for Brandon Klein. I mean, he really matches Matt Price – largely pitch for pitch and was really, really good and, and largely saves this game for Virginia, it, not in the literal sense, but it just in terms of things could have, you know, uh, snowballed on Virginia in a different scenario, but he comes in and settles things down. But Matt Price ends up kind of being the star of the show in a lot of ways. And when we were talking to, to Michael Roth, he talked about how, you know, he thrived in those situations and, and specifically thrived in situations where he'd get himself in a jam and it, it almost seemed like a game to him that he just wanted to see what kind of hot water he could get in just to see how close he could get to, you know, how close he could get to, to, to getting scored on or not saving the game just to see if he could do it. And clearly that's not what's going on, but he sure does make it look like that at times. And that happened late in this game too. You start getting into extra innings and, you know, Virginia's getting guys on and um, starting to put pressure on him. And, and sometimes he gets out of it with something like a strikeout. And sometimes like in the 13th inning, you know, Virginia stings a line drive up the middle where if Scott Wingo is, you know, playing a couple feet to his left or gets a late jump or any number of things, that ball goes up the middle and Virginia maybe gets that run there uh, with a couple of guys on base. Instead, Wingo snags it, tosses it, you know, to shortstop to get the double play on a line drive. Uh, But Price just kind of as like, just kind of this Houdini act where he's able to get out of every last jam that he puts himself in and I think that's why he has become – I mean, the production, of course, was, was there as well. But I think that's part of why he's such a big figure on these teams is there's just this kind of theatrical element to the way he pitched. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And when, when you look at all the times Virginia could have won this game and, you know, just every single time South Carolina wriggles out of it, and I guess that's how you win – 20 straight tournament games, 21 straight tournament games. That's how you win back-to-back national championships because you're getting the breaks and you're putting pressure on the opponent um, and, and taking advantage of, of your own, the, the, the breaks that, that you get. But yeah, I mean, just to see Virginia continue to put runners on and not be able to come up with a big hit. I mean, it, it must've been brutal to, to watch that. Uh, in real time as a, as a who's fan. And, you know, I mean, it's a really good offense. Like that's the other thing, like you're looking at at this Virginia lineup and it's like, it's Chris Taylor, Stephen Prosha, um, you know, Hicks and and just all up and down the lineup. There are good hitters in it throughout and they just, they're they're stymied uh, by, by price, by Roth, by, by anything that, that South Carolina is throwing at them. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it becomes, like so many extra inning games do, kind of a, a battle of the wills. But, you know, like, like Ross saying, like the, you just got to, 
you got to find a way and, and, and the way that they're, they're out there putting pressure on, on their opponents that you know, it kind of, kind of can wear on them at times. Yeah. I think if this, this game was a little bit easier to watch from the standpoint of, you know, Virginia just coming up short time and again, it almost made me feel, I think seeing that could create a scenario where you start to really like feel for them in a way. It actually put me a little bit at ease that I know that like, okay, you know, like a few years from now, don't get me wrong. It's not the same group of players, but a few years from now, like this program gets their national championship and that made me feel a little bit better. And granted they would have had to, they would have had to win a few more games after this one to even to, to, to have it happen in 2011. But that Virginia team was so good to your point. And even, even with the, you know, taking a couple losses in Omaha to get eliminated, they finished the season 52 and nine. And for a team to lose less than 10 games all year and not win a national title, I mean, that's, they've got to be one of the better teams, at least in modern history to not get that done. And so, um, but the idea that they come, you know, they come back a few years later and they get their trophy, even though, like I said, not the same group of guys, like it did, it did kind of put me a little bit at ease because otherwise you're right. It is kind of just tough to watch over and over again that, that they were coming up short in, in situations where it felt like they were on the verge of putting a run across. But that's also what makes this game, this game so good from the South Carolina standpoint and also part of what makes what South Carolina was doing so impressive because it, it wasn't like in this 22 game postseason winning streak, it wasn't like they were just mowing teams down. They had some of that, sure, but they were winning a lot of games like this. And that's, I think, part of what A, makes it impressive, but B, makes it, um, you know, makes it something that could never be replicated, I don't think. I mean, you just need so much of a combination of talent and good fortune to be able to pull that kind of thing off. And so it's something I don't think we'll ever see again that kind of streak just because the bounces don't go your way sometimes. And in this game, and I'm sure there were several other examples during this run where South Carolina just got some bounces. The other team didn't. And that's how you end up winning 22 in a row. I mean, it got hit on a little bit with Roth. Um, You know, he's talking about how good every team you're playing is, how good that Florida team was and that Florida team. I mean, you look at the talent on that team that they're going to play in the finals. Uh, It was incredible as well. But, you know, you think about it, you're talking about how, how often do you not even lose 10 times in a year and don't win the national title? Uh, you're just that kind of gaudy record. Well, I mean, the year before, like Roth is mentioning, they beat Coastal. And 2010 Coastal is widely regarded, in, in, you know, as one of the best teams not to make it to the College World Series. And, um, you know, yeah, Coastal goes out and gets their national title later as well. But that, that 2010... Uh, coastal team is is an incredible team and, and South Carolina knocks them off and, and just to to be that kind of champion you beating those kinds of teams to to win two in a row of these you, you gotta you gotta keep rolling through some of the some of these big time win total teams uh, and these these all-time great teams and that that's what the South Carolina team, does under Ray Tanner for two years and I mean kind of for three obviously they do come up short in 12 but it's only just short and I you know just the confidence that they have to be playing with is really impressive that you know they they absolutely just feel like they're unbeatable and, and it seems like that that they're certainly feeling that as well and I guess if you're out there winning 
20 straight NCAA tournament games, it, you deserve to feel like that. I, uh, I don't know if you had a similar feeling that I did. I think, actually, I, I know this is the first TD Ameritrade Park Omaha game that we have done in this series. I have that right, correct? We've done several That's Rosenblatt. Correct. Yeah. So uh, because I never got to Rosenblatt, I didn't really necessarily – also, those old Rosenblatt games we've discussed were day games – there was something about watching this and it being a TD Ameritrade night game uh, that made me kind of uh, a little bit sad, the fact that we're not going to get that this year. Um, I really haven't had to grapple with that a ton. I've had the thought and gone like, oh, well, that sucks. But, like, I've never really had it hit me in the face that way. And it wasn't necessarily just the, the, the game and seeing the stadium, all of that contributed to it. It was just that I made a, a mental note, you know, that we were – two and a half hours on the YouTube version, which means we were closer to like three hours probably in terms of actual game time. And the sun was still kind of out a little bit. And those Omaha nights are long because, you know, they are on the kind of Western edge of the central time zone. So it gets dark pretty late there. And something about just that late Omaha sunset and seeing that low light and something about all of that combined, combined with a good game on the field, of course, just really started to make me, feel a little bit sad that we're not going to get that this year. And I, I presume as we go through the rest of the offseason, there will be a number of moments like that. But this is the first time I've really had to, to grapple with it in that way. Yeah, I won't say that I felt that way. And I think kind of because, yeah, it's the first time we're seeing TD Ameritrade and like it looks a little more like what we're used to, but it still felt very different. I feel like, you know, you look at the broadcast booth and it's Mike Patrick and Robin Ventura. Robin Ventura is presently a student assistant at Oklahoma State. Mike Patrick hasn't done the World Series in, I don't know, five, eight, I don't, I don't remember precisely when he stopped, but at least well, it's been Vin- more than five years. Ventura managed the White Sox in between? <laughs> like <laughs> I, I had 1,000% forgotten that happened. Um, you know, So that's going on there. Kyle Peterson's on the field as a sideline reporter. Um, you know, the the stadium, the the the, sh- the way they're shooting in the stadium is a little different. They don't, you know, and I one of the the big things for me that that kind of stood out is very early in the game, a beach ball comes out of the stands, as happens plenty of times, um, in over the course of the College World Series. And Jackie Bradley Jr. goes over and gets the beach ball and throws it back up. And today, anytime that happens, like players are not getting that the grounds crew is running out to get it and they like stab the ball and like put it up as like a essentially like a a hunting display rack like somewhere in the bullpen of all the beach balls they've like confiscated or whatever like uh so just like a little thing like that i was like oh things have changed in the last 10 years they they like really uh Yes, they're at TD Ameritrade, but they're just learning the park just like everybody else's. Yeah, I think that's really interesting you say that because so I was thinking about that. You've kind of led me back to the maybe a more well-rounded point of, that I was trying to make a little bit earlier with some of the sounds of TD Ameritrade Park being a little different is, you know, we'd have to have someone who went to both both parks, you know, to cover games come on to kind of confirm that. But I think early on, and I remember this being a discussion when I was a fan back in 2011, for example, being part of the discussion of this was that initially, since there was so much apprehension about what they were losing by getting rid of Rosenblatt, you know, there was that community 
feel to the, the deal at Rosenblatt where people were parking cars in people's lawns and, you know, all that jazz. That I, I wonder if early on in TD Ameritrade, they were just trying to make it Rosenblatt, but over here, as opposed to now where it feels like, okay, this is different than what Rosenblatt was. And there's always going to be some people who think back wistfully about those days at Rosenblatt and understandably and rightfully so. But now they're kind of just, this is different now and this, this is its own thing. And, and now there's this own, its own culture around TD Ameritrade Park now, and they're no longer trying to make it what it was in a nicer location. Now it's, it's kind of developed its own feel, if you will. Yeah, that that's definitely true. And um, yeah, there's, there are a couple like shots from outside the stadium and it doesn't look like the way it does now. And Michael Roth alluded to that, that, um, everyone was still just trying to figure it out. Whereas the previous year, you know, that everyone talks about Rosenblatt being a block party. Uh, and, and it was, it was that way. And then they moved downtown and it's not the, the development isn't done yet. And no one knows what they're doing yet in terms of tailgating and, and the like. And so, yeah, I, I do not think we currently hear like charge or any of the rest of that stuff piped in. Um, you know, the one thing about TD Ameritrade that you may not realize if you're just watching it on TV, actually, that you wouldn't realize if you're just watching it on TV, is that the press box, the windows don't open. It's in, almost entirely soundproof. They literally pipe in the crowd mic so that people in the press box can hear what's going on out there. Uh, so it feels a little different sometimes. I'm, I don't mind it, actually, um, but it does mean that sometimes it's a little sterile and they, for all I know, they are playing charge calls and it just totally is my brain's not picking up on that. But I, I don't, I don't think they're doing that as much anymore. I have to imagine that like at this time they didn't have in stadium hosts and like all sorts of stuff that they've now picked up on. And um, I, it is, it's just very interesting that like to look at the first year of this uh, and, and just see how much things have changed. And that's not the overarching point here, uh, but you know when you look back at at the way that South Carolina straddles this, it, it's really impressive. This is not a unique point, but just that they win the last one in Rosenblatt, they win the first one in TB, TD Ameritrade. They can win with the old bats, they win with the new bats. Like nothing really seems seems to to stop them, to slow them down at all um, for the better part of three years here, and. Uh, you know, just the the way that South Carolina bridges the history of Omaha in the College World Series, the, the, these two very distinct eras, the Rosenblatt era and the, the start of the TD Ameritrade era, it's, it's a very interesting, um, kind of trivial, but in other ways not trivial because of what it says about the team, what it says about Ray Tanner. Uh, because there is so much returning talent. It's not like they just had two different teams and they happened to win in back-to-back years. No, it, there, there are a lot of these same players that are managing to do it at both ends. And I, it's just a, a, a unique position in history. And I think it's really cool that we have that um, to to bridge the, 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 the two stadiums and, and what they represent in terms of the College World Series history. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think I have much to add there. I think that's that's well put. I think um, that is probably the best way to encapsulate why this era of South Carolina baseball, why these particular South Carolina teams are so important to the modern history of our sport. No, I think that's really well put. You know, and I in two thousand and eleven was 
an intern at Baseball America, actually. So I was around the office when, when this was happening. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of, I was doing a lot of like draft and minor stuff in addition to whatever college stuff I could take on. But I know I did not fully appreciate what South Carolina was doing at the time. And I don't know. I, I certainly have gained appreciation the more that I've looked back on it, but I certainly didn't appreciate it at the time. And I think that it's one thing to look at them. You know, a lot of people probably were able to grasp back-to-back titles, like how much that means and like, okay, but it's, it's a lot more than that because, you know, Oregon State goes back-to-back. They're two totally different teams. They weren't really uh, expected to do it. Uh, not that South Carolina was favored to do it by any means, but they certainly were a much more prominent team and are doing it over these two different eras. And, and so it, it, it's much different when you look at them as a back-to-back champion than when you look at some of the other back-to-back champions um, in recent, you know, or, or teams that got close to being back-to-back champions in recent times. And um, I, I just think that that, is unique and, and is something to to really acknowledge as being special that what South Carolina was able to accomplish and you know the it truly was the glory days of South Carolina baseball. It's hard to imagine it ever getting that good again. Not to say that they won't or they can't win national titles again. I mean, I'm sure that they can, but to be that kind of team just feels like that's a, we aren't going to see that in college baseball, whether it's at South Carolina or anywhere that, that, that's, that might be something that we have to wait a very long time to see anywhere in the country. Yeah. I think that's, that's an important point to make. It's not, not a dig on South Carolina that they'll never be able to do this again. I just think, you know, like I said, whether it's the postseason winning streak or, you know, even getting to three CWS championship series in a row just seems so far, far-fetched given how competitive college baseball is and was back then too, by the way, which is the point we're making here is that it was just so difficult to do what they did and they really threaded the needle there. And it's hard to imagine anybody being able to catch lightning in a bottle in quite the same way again. Shouts to Ray Tanner is the TLDR version of that. So with that, uh, I think we're going to put a bow on this 2011 College World Series game. Uh, Definitely fun to look back on. Uh, Hopefully you guys all enjoyed the trip down memory lane with Michael Roth. Uh, Joe, why don't you tell the people what we are going to be doing next week if they want to watch along ahead of us uh, to, to do their homework, I guess, as it were, before next week's podcast. Yeah, we're going to be doing an all-SEC Super Regional, the 2018 Gainesville Super Regional between Florida and Auburn. It was uh, obviously a big deal for Florida. Um, I also think there's an interesting storyline here that I'm sure will mine, which is that the 2018 Super Regional and the way they lost that Super Regional ends up being something of a springboard for Auburn into 2019 and what they were able to accomplish then. So that's certainly something we'll talk about as well. But uh, you know, Florida comes out ahead in this one. It's a good game. It's another extra inning game. Um, not quite as lengthy as, as the one we just watched. So, and, and certainly the game not being in Omaha will help probably be a little bit snappier, but it still is an extra inning game. 
but one that has a really dramatic ending. I'm sure many of you recall that ending, but we'll go ahead and, and not spoil every last thing about the, the game in case you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while. Um, but it's a good one. Looking forward to talking about it. It'll certainly be one that, that you and I will both have more firsthand memories of. So we'll, we'll maybe that'll be a little bit different conversation than we're used to having with some of these games. But um, looking forward to, um, you know, it's another one of these moments where I remember exactly where I was when I saw this happen. I'm sure you do too. Uh, saw the end of the game. Yeah, the end of the game happens. So um, that'll be fun perspective, I think. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. It should be, should be a good one. I would urge everyone to go ahead and uh, head over to the post that on the website, baseballamerica.com and, and look for the link uh, to this one. It, um, it, you know, like I said, it's a pretty, it's, it's a longer game, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a quicker watch here. I think it's a little bit snappier and um, won't be, won't be too much of a commitment for you to go ahead and jump into it. It also has like an outstanding payoff. That's one thing we didn't touch on with South Carolina, Virginia. And I think we should real quick here because the payoff that's coming at the end of the super regional game is uh, pretty significant. Um, how do we feel about that Virginia season ending the way it did that? I mean, they were so good and yes, give South Carolina all the credit to, you know, go out and finish it off. But, you know, it's not like they hit a walk off or anything. They, it, you know, Virginia throws the ball away. And, yeah. you know, it's a team that had been playing pretty crisp baseball all season long, obviously. And, and then that is their undoing and, uh, you know, deep in extra innings in Omaha. Yeah, it was, that, that part was tough for sure. Um, and the fact that it's the same kid and the pitcher, you know, um, you know, back to back, you know, poor throws didn't be, I mean, it really does. Sometimes you say, you, you'll say, you know, runs scored in large part thanks to errors, but I mean, those, that run really was just created by the errors. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. So yeah, you, you definitely felt for him in that moment. It does kind of end up being a, a flat ending to, to what was otherwise, like you said, a, a game that was, that was obviously tight. It was in the 13th inning. And it's funny. I mean, that was kind of, um, I mean, that was how Virginia got their run to tie it was, you know, a misplay on the infield for South Carolina. So that was, you know, circling back to the, the kind of time and places, those are the, sometimes the kind of breaks you needed to create runs in 2011 college baseball. So in that way, I think it's, it's fitting we got an ending that way. But certainly from a Virginia standpoint, it was, I'm sure, painful uh, in the moment. And, you know, for fans anyway, only now maybe assuaged by the fact that they've had so much success after that and then won a national championship. But for those players, I'm sure it was just it couldn't have been a more difficult way to lose that one. Yeah, I think pretty much everything about this game is a perfect encapsulation of the time. Like all the runs score, uh, and like they had to get kind of helped along. The the first run is because Michael Roth walks someone, and then he comes around to score. The he comes up, comes home on a double play, not not yeah. even like a hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, you know the the final runs are are products of errors, and um, in between there's some really great pitching, but. Yeah, it's uh, – I liked college baseball at the time, minus the bunting. Like, I'm not going to sit here and complain about well-pitched games. But, yeah, the, this was this was not – you know, as much as I dislike gorilla ball, the, this was a pendulum sl- swing too far in the other direction for everyone, I think. Certainly for me. 
yes, that is that, that you are you are far from alone in that. There are there are plenty of people that would much prefer we go back to Gorilla Ball before we go anywhere near what we got in uh, in the BBC uh, or uh, era. But we will leave that behind um, next week. So we, we we do have a a uh, different era of baseball again, even though the game will only be seven years further along into into time. Uh, one one of the weird quirks of college baseball over the last decade is just how how regiment or how segmented it's been because of various equipment changes, basically. Uh, but we will be back here with that on Friday. Joe and I will be joined by another guest um, who was uh, who was a part of that game. That, again, that super regional game in 2018 between Florida and Auburn. Before then. We are continuing to go two times a week here on the Baseball America College podcast. So we'll be back here on Tuesday. Joe and I will be joined then by Kansas State coach Pete Hughes. Assuming he doesn't get preempted by news again this week, Pete was supposed to join us uh, this last week on, on the Baseball America College podcast. And then the Cape Cod League canceled its season and we, uh, we, we reformatted the show to uh, – to acknowledge the Cape stuff, the Cape news, and then uh, Pete graciously agreed to delay his appearance a week. So we will we will get uh, Coach Hughes on here, talk some Kansas State. He has a very interesting background in coaching that we want to dive into. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do all of that, and you can check that out. We'll be back here on Tuesday with that. And so if you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, whether, wherever you are listening to podcasts, uh, you can find us. Please subscribe. Please leave a rating or review if you can. We greatly appreciate those as well. And then on Friday, of course, we'll be back here with another classic game. Uh, as, as we are continuing, that, that our plan is to continue that uh, for the next couple months at least, going uh, twice a week, and perhaps we'll reevaluate once the traditional college baseball season comes to an end uh, at the end of June. But until then, we'll, we'll certainly keep this up for you guys. Um, beyond that, there's plenty of content over at baseballamerica.com. We had another coaching confidential question go up this week. I wrote a story about how volunteer assistant coaches are managing in, during the shutdown uh, because they cannot hold camps or clinics uh, that really cuts into uh, I mean that, that really cuts off the money that they're able to make to fund the positions so that's um, definitely something that college baseball is going to ha have to reckon with if campuses remain shut down across the country into the summer as many of them already have been uh, we'll have a new top 25 on the website on Monday. Joe, do we feel comfortable saying what this week's top 25 is? I think so. I think we're pretty locked into it. All right, Joe, what are we doing? What are we, what are we ranking 25 of? Remember, we are ranking 25 things every Monday from now until whenever, um, because, uh, you know, we, we miss ranking things. We don't get to rank 25 baseball teams a week anymore. So we're, we're ranking other things. And Joe, what is it this week? Yeah. So after back-to-back -back weeks of like fairly earnest rankings, like golden spikes, uh, winning seasons and then Cape League players of all time. We dug into like research on this. For sure. Like that was earnest, like really caring about the specific or like we, we had 
legitimate discussions about moving guys up like one or two slots. This week, however, even more important, ranking uniforms. So we're, I mean, we're, we are prepared to throw ourselves for, in the, in the name of service journalism, throwing ourselves into all the various uniform combinations in college baseball. And we're going to try to spit out the 25 best, understandably subjective, you know, what you, what you view as best. But in our eyes, we're going to throw what we feel are the 25 best uniforms in college baseball. And spoiler alert, you're going to hate it just because I don't think there's any way <laughs> that we could possibly rank 25 uniforms and have everybody like it. I think that's just one of those topics that everybody's going to have a strong, a different strong opinion. And that's just kind of the way it is. I choose to be more optimistic, Joe, and I think people are going to love this ranking because it's going to be objectively correct and there will be no oh, arguments. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, with that in mind, if you guys have favorite uniforms, um, we're just looking for one single uniform, not sets. So if your favorite team has just one uniform, as long as they regularly wear it, I'm not looking for specific special uniforms, but if they only wear it, say on Sundays, I don't care. As long as they wear it, on every home Sunday, it's fine. Um, send those to us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And again, just individual uniforms. Uh, you know, so I don't care if, I mean, let's just say it, West Virginia might have the worst single uniform in the country. But if West, it's the digital camo one, in case you're confused, look it up. I, but they also might have one of the best. I'm not going to hold the digital camo against them. If they have one of the 25 best, we'll rank that. It's, it's not going to get held back because they have a uniform that is objectively not good. Um, do not at me if you like the West Virginia digital camo uniform, please. Um, so that's what we're looking for. Send us your suggestions and then check back over at baseballamerica.com on Monday for our ranking. And again, it'll be objectively correct, so you don't have to worry about it. We'll get them right. Uh, but if you have thoughts, feel free to, to send them to, to Joe and I. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. So that'll do it for us today. We'll be back here on Tuesday on the Baseball America College podcast. Till then, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you again to Michael Roth for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks to Joe for joining me as always. I'm Teddy Cahill. We'll talk to you next week.